This is the Education Gadfly Show. I'm just teasing you. Oh, man. You, you do send us some challenges, Mike. Well, I know. Like, I know. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Brandon Wright. Brandon, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mike, thanks. Brandon, at times, has been a co-host here on the show, and we are having him here because he is also the author, co-editor of a brand new book, Getting the Most Bang for the Education Buck, that was just released by Teachers College Press and co-edited by our good friend, Rick Hess. Brandon, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Exciting stuff, yeah. Also joining us, our co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. How you doing, David? I'm hanging in there. It was another uh, long weekend of uh, diapers and uh, beautiful sunshine, to be fair. So it's good to be working again. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So I guess you did not release uh, your own edited volume uh, over the weekend then? No, 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 no. I, that, I'm very impressed with Brandon here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Brandon, get, get these books written before you start having a family, because once that happens, forget about it. That sounds forget like about it. it. Yeah. No, just just kidding. You know, uh, the only way you can do it is like Rick Hess does now that he has kids is he uh, co-edits things with other people and then he doesn't have to do as much of the work and bada boom, bada bing. So <laughs> let's talk about it in Ed Reform Update. Brandon, uh, excited about this book. This book is a little bit of a sequel, you know, to the extent that we have sequels in in the book publishing world of edited volumes. Uh, there was a book that came out 10 years ago, right after the Great Recession. Well, a little bit after the Great Recession hit, trying to give advice to schools about how to stretch the school dollar. And uh, what? I mean, you must have looked in into the future somehow with your superpowers and knew that another major recession was coming when you decided to, to get started on this book a couple of years ago. How did you do that, Brandon? Yeah, it's funny. The previous book, right, sort of was in response to this very specific economic event. And this book was supposed to be more general. And so the way it is written and, and, and framed, it is meant to be sort of evergreen advice. Of course, Sort of after everything was done, you know, we went into this uh, pandemic, which obviously I would have preferred it to not be so timely. Uh, I would rather have no pandemic than a than a timely book, you know. But with the pandemic here, um, it turned out to be pretty uh, serendipitous. Um, so it's just uh, relevant advice, um, but it's more relevant now than it has been in a very long time. Yeah, no, very much so. And so it's a little weird, right, to say, well, congratulations on, on timing this so perfectly, because of course, you're right, we wish that we were not in a position with this awful health crisis, but also in a position where we now, it seems likely, are going to have school districts and charter schools needing to make some severe budget cuts. At least that's how it looks right now with the huge revenue loss that happened during the shutdowns and a recovery that's going to take time. And so far, no federal aid uh, to help fill up those state and local coffers. And so, you know, it may not hit maybe this year, but certainly by next year, we're talking about possibly huge, huge budget cuts, maybe even worse than we saw after the Great Recession. And so this book is going to be helpful for folks, uh, you know, again, for better, or for worse, when they're making some of these tough decisions. Now, Let's start with this. You know, we we are a writer centered think tank, as is AEI. Already on Twitter, I've seen some comments. You know, when I tweeted out uh, an essay you and Rick wrote that was drawn from the book, somebody basically saying, like, 
you know, this is horrible. Like what terrible timing, you know, don't look so happy about cutting spending, you know, during a crisis. I mean, how do you respond to this? Is this just, well, this is just conservatives again that don't want to spend money on the schools. Uh, Is that the message of the book? No, I mean, I feel like we're just being pragmatic. Uh, A lot of the advice that we give in the book obviously won't be popular with the people um, that it gives less to. Like a great example is pensions and healthcare. Um, But even before this, and especially now, you know, a, a lot of budget items and a lot of the things that schools were spending a lot on, it was just untenable. Um, so you have to make unpopular choices, pragmatic choices to ensure that the money that needs to go to classrooms and teachers and uh, to ensure that students learn, mm-hmm. you have to make tough choices. So, and, and I'd say like in, in the 10 years since the other book came out, there has been some pretty compelling evidence uh, that has been released, Carbo Jackson studies and others showing that, well, it does look like there's a pretty clear relationship between spending and outcomes that had been in question for, you know, I mean, for decades, it was fair for conservatives to say, well, you know, we don't necessarily know that spending more money after a certain point makes a difference. Now we have a better evidence that it does, again, at least that uh, when you have to make cuts, like during a recession, it can hurt student outcomes. And that when you got extra money, like from school finance reforms, uh, if spent well, that can make a difference. Uh, and, and there's nothing in the book that's disputing that per se, right? In fact, isn't there a chapter even uh, embracing that? Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, uh, Rick says this a lot, probably more than anything else when it comes to this book, that this, this debate that we had before, apparently, which was sort of before my time in, in, in ed policy, it's pretty bizarre. Um, it's not really a debate we have in anything else. If you give me like a million dollars, I can build or buy a better car than I could with $10,000. You could fill in any commodity, any item there, and it's true. So it's weird that we could think that if you spend twice as much on education, it's not going to make a difference. Of course it will. But there is a question. question. (laughs) All right. It's just a separate question, right, Brandon? I mean, how you spend the money is one question, and how much money you spend is another question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And and look, th- there were examples back in the day of, of some districts that spent a ton of money, like the District of Columbia, that just had, you know, were just so broken, so dysfunctional, nobody even knew where the money was going. And so, you know, there was that argument that said, well, but now we're in an era where there is at least some transparency, both on outcomes and now on the spending itself. Uh, and there's some more evidence. There was a study just a few weeks ago that you know looked at this combination accountability plus uh, plus spending. You can get uh, better results, and so that maybe puts us in a different place. All right. So with all of that said, what are some of the specifics? You mentioned pensions and healthcare. What can school districts do if they've got to cut something? What are the the best or the least worst options for them to go for? Yeah, I mean, I think pensions and healthcare, uh, which you mentioned, are two easy targets. States combined have something like $500 billion in unfunded pension debt and something like 7% of healthcare costs are, are covered. Um, the vast majority of every dollar that's spent on pensions uh, goes to people who are not currently employed by school districts. So again, these are examples of these unpopular options uh, that I said earlier, but they're also very easy targets, right? You stop enrolling people in lifetime pensions and lifetime healthcare, um, and instead you do what basically every other job in the country does, which, you know, you give them vehicles like 401ks, uh, you know, perhaps you match, um, you give them choices with their health care when they are able to enroll in um, Medicare, 
they do things like that uh aside from from those easy targets staffing is is also a really big target over the last you know few decades teacher salaries have remained basically flat when you adjust for inflation but districts have spent significantly more on staff in general but these are people who generally aren't in the classroom or at least aren't instructing kids in classrooms Mm -hmm. we talk about this most specifically with staffing in general um and then special education for the staffing itself, um, the chapter comes from Brian and Emily Hast, a lot of public impact, and they suggest doing these basically teacher teams where you take your most effective teachers, you pay them more, and instead of them teaching full-time, they teach part-time. They spend the rest of their time sort of uh, helping and overseeing um, other teachers sort of under their purview, mm-hmm. helping them with instruction, curriculum, things like that. Um, so this eliminates some some other roles. It pays teachers more. It sort of encourages teachers to to sort of go the extra mile, perhaps to achieve these these positions. Uh, with special education, it's pretty simple. It's you know trying to put more and more of these kids into general education, which is possible for them. And instead of uh, hiring and paying a large amount of low skill, low paid staff that really just sort of help um, manage these kids in separate classrooms, which are expensive, you mm-hmm. find highly skilled, highly experienced, higher paid professionals who are in these general education classrooms with these kids. So you're spending less um, on less staff, but the kids are actually learning more and at a faster pace and in a way that's more appropriate for them. And mm-hmm. general education classrooms where they're being better socialized than they would be in these separate special education classrooms. Whew, that all well said, Brandon. And it's so complicated, right, David? I mean, this quickly touches on on everything, right? Yeah, I think there were a few nerves you didn't touch there, Brandon. You should uh, go back and touch. I, mean, I think yeah, you've been doing a lot of uh, AM. So uh, I've said this like 15 times in the last week. <laughs> but look, this is, you know, if we only change the way we do teaching and learning and we change the people we hired. and But I, look, I think what, what we have done in this country, and we've said this before, we'll say it again, we have decided, first of all, to choose teacher quantity over quality, right? We're just going to keep throwing more bodies in there, but not paying them well, right? And uh, and so we've got this bloat. So you could fix this by, you, you, you know, if you paid teachers more and potentially trained them better and potentially had teachers who on average were stronger, then maybe they wouldn't need as much help and as much support. And you could get rid of some of these other roles that we've created that we've really created to try to help those sort of mediocre teachers do a little bit better. Uh, and that, you know, starts to look a lot more like what m- most high performing countries do where you've got higher paid, higher quality teachers, but there's more on their plate. You know, they have to do more without as much help in terms of more staff. I mean, does that sound right, David? Am I? I mean, it's, I don't know why I'm the authority on this, but I, <laughs> it sounds, uh, potentially doable to me. I, I do think that it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly when you're talking about, something like special ed, right? And maybe Brandon can speak to it more um, because, you know, I mean, that, that you're talking about so many different categories of kids there. You know, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also making some sort of class size trade-offs here too, Brandon. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know there is literature behind all those things. And, and I tend to agree, especially when it comes to prioritizing quality over quantity, uh, that the, the dial has moved too far. But I do think it's tricky. Um, and And it's almost certainly... I don't know. It's almost certainly going to depend on the, the sort of the kids in question, the district in question. And it, it's kind of tough for me to comment beyond that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Brandon. <laughs> As I, I tried to say earlier, right. A lot of these, these things are obviously more complicated than I'm explaining here on the podcast. Also, you know, just being the editor, uh, the reason why we didn't write this book ourselves and instead, you know, found, um, experts to write each individual chapter is because frankly, on these given topics, they're the experts and Rick and I, um, are not. So, um, I can really just sort of regurgitate what, uh, and Nate, Levinson um, is the one who wrote the special education chapter. So I encourage him to be on the podcast if possible. But uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, clearly special education is a very complicated topic. The people involved in it advocating for these kids uh, on both sides, it's, it's expensive, it's fraught, um, it's emotionally um, involved. And obviously we're talking about, you know, some of these kids who need school um, and need support far more than other children. So, I mean, obviously very, very important things, but generally what Nate argues, and he argues it pretty well because this is sort of what, what Nate does, is that there are districts who have uh, made the changes he's made and they just very simply spend less and get more. So uh, not to plug it the book or anything, right? But uh, no, I, we would never do that. Oh, uh, Brandon, what do you think you're doing on the podcast? Of course you're yeah, no, no, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so these, these so the purpose of the book exist and they, they have done this. Yeah, no, and, and look, that is of course the case is that we can look at high performing schools that have been forced to get good results without a lot of money. I mean, sometimes those are charter schools because the charter sector tends to be underfunded, but you know, you don't even have to look there. I mean, clearly there are some States that just are low spending States, California, uh, first among them, uh, but some others as well, Florida, uh, Arizona, and you can find some high performing schools and you might get a sense of sort of what's, what's the must haves, you know, what do they spend their money on? That's just an absolute must. And then where do they have to say, look, we, we wish we could afford X, Y, and Z, but we can't, so we don't have it, you know, and, and that might give some schools and in, in other places that are used to having more money, some ideas of what, what could be on there to cut list. But back to where you were at the beginning, you know, this idea that so in some of these places, this huge budget item goes to pay the healthcare costs for teachers who have retired and their families for the rest of their lives. That one is a really hard one to justify in a world where we've got Obamacare, where there is Medicare, where there's other options out there. That might, in, in my view, it's, it's a tough one politically because the teachers unions fight tooth and nail for that. Uh, but in terms of something that is not uh, directly related to helping kids in the here and now. Uh, that one seems like something that people should look at. So let's leave it there. Really exciting. People should buy this book. Uh, they may have to stretch their own school dollar because it's expensive. Uh, it, that's what happens when you do academic publishers, but but it's worth every cent. And I, I hope people so. will check it out. Good. All right. Thanks so much, Brandon. Look forward to having you on sometime soon. And until then, let's get ready for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So Amber, you know, I got to say, Brandon's got his new book out and he really timed this one pretty well, a, a book about stretching the school dollar right as we're in a terrible recession. I don't know. Do you have any like amazingly timed studies coming out on your end? Uh, amazingly timed studies coming out on my <laughs> Yeah. Like for example, if, if we had a study right now about how to do remote learning really well based on years of data, this would be the perfect time to come out with that study. Right. right. 
<laughs> I'm stumped. Come on, research team. Come on. Just teasing you. Just teasing you. Oh, man. You you do send us some challenges, Mike. I know. I got to say. It, it's always a shame, this whole thing about how good research takes time to do. I know. I know. It's a problem. Uh, not not that you ever underestimate the time it takes for us to do studies. I know. Anyhow. All right. Well, speaking of good studies, you got one for us this week? I do. I think it's a good study. It's, it's looking at an intervention around school-based community crime. And basically, it's looking at whether this school-based community crime monitoring program could impact student absenteeism. And so recent studies have looked a lot about how to reduce absenteeism, especially given that it's part of so many ESSA plans these days. And they're looking at things like, you know, providing parents with more information about their kids' absences. That's sort of intervention. But this is actually one of the first studies to examine how a type of neighborhood crime watch program might impact absences. And I had a sort of interest in it because I know it's used in Washington, D.C., and we actually use it at my charter school that I was on the board of. I was super interested in reading this. So it's called the Safe Passage Program, and it places unarmed adults employed by neighborhood-based nonprofit organizations to keep watch on specific city blocks around designated public schools in Chicago. I mean, you guys may have seen these, you know, type of monitors around your own schools, maybe. They basically serve as physical presence. They perform basic surveillance and crime reporting on these assigned blocks during the times that kids arrive and dismiss from school. So about two to three hours in the morning and two to three hours in the afternoon, they work. In Chicago, they get paid 10 bucks an hour and they receive annual training on conflict de-escalation, first aid, CPR, and how to monitor and report criminal activity and communicate that activity with school officials. And, and keep in mind, I mean, Chicago, you know, for now years has just been the epicenter of this resurgence, right, in violent crime in, in some cities. And we've been worried about uh, kids crossing gang territories and the like on, on the way to school and back home. So I assume it's all caught up. Ernie Duncan doing great work on all of this in Chicago. Yes, they wear, you know, these fantastic neon vests, and then they get cell phones or two-way radios provided by the district. Uh, just FYI, the district of Chicago spent $16 million on this safe passage program in 2016-17. All right, so this is where it gets a little bit interesting because it only includes elementary schools, the study. They did not have complete data for high schools. Plus, high schools had like multiple other attendance initiatives going on at the same time, which meant that they were going to have a really hard time trying to isolate the impact of what I'm going to call SPP, Safe Passage Program. So they constructed a panel of elementary schools only that were open continuously for at least six years between 2007 and 2015-16. There were 391 untreated control schools and 83 eventually treated Safe Passage schools. They started with 53 elementary schools in 2013-14, and they subsequently expanded in each subsequent year until they reached that 83 number in 2016-17, okay? They use a difference in differences approach that leverages the staggered rollout of the SPP program across elementary schools. It includes school and year fixed effects. In short, the idea is that variation in the timing of the introduction of the SPP program across schools captures the extent to which the program affects school outcomes. A little bit wonky, but a condition of difference in difference models is parallel trends 
And they're able to show that school level absence outcomes in treatment and control schools were trending similarly before the introduction of SPP. And then they have data not only on SPP, but also on various school level data, student behavior, and local crime data. Key finding. The program resulted in an 11% reduction in the school level absence rate. If absences, just to give you an idea, like what does that look like? If absences were distributed uniformly across students in the school, this would equate to around 1.4 additional attendance days per student per year. In terms of heterogeneous effects, Hispanic students in particular appeared to benefit even more from the program. Compared to all students, impacts did not differ for students from low-income backgrounds, Black students, and those with disabilities. So it's Hispanic kids that seem to appear to benefit from it even more. Hmm. And then they start looking into potential mechanisms, mainly whether the reductions in absences could be coming from outside the school or inside the school. And in terms of outside, um, they think, well, maybe student perceptions of safety to and from school helps to stem these absences. And so they look at crime rates within a quarter mile radius of the school during the school days and hours, and they do find that introduction of the program reduced crime rates near the treated schools. So for instance, violent crimes were reduced by almost 10% and property crimes by nearly 15%. Then turning to inside the school, they think, well, perhaps these community monitors could prevent or deter incidents from happening somehow. And they did indeed find reduced incidents of serious student misconduct within the treated schools that amounted to about a 27% decline. However, they aren't able to rule out that the reductions in out-of-school suspensions, which I figured you guys might ask me about, they can't rule out that they aren't due to the decreases in the serious misconduct that I just mentioned. That's kind of it. And then it goes on to some more implications, but basically says, you know, these impacts are online with some of the other interventions we tried to decrease student absences. Wow. It's, it's powerful. You know, keep in mind in Chicago too, I believe when we say elementary schools, we mean K to eight, I think in Chicago, right? I'm pretty sure they don't have middle schools. Yeah, I don't know, Mike. Does that sound right? So, you know, we're not just talking about little tiny kids, but we're also talking about adolescents who, uh, yeah, you know, very much may be afraid of, of, you know, crossing into dangerous territory and or getting mixed up up in it themselves. I assume that a lot of these kids are walking to school instead of bus service. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, when when the pandemic's over and we have busing again, I can imagine that the school bus people can use a study like this to make the case that, you know, having safe transportation to school is really important. You know, I mean, this this program is one way to do it and and has other benefits. Obviously, we want to reduce crime. But but also just, you know, if kids didn't have to walk to school and they had a safe way to get there on the bus, maybe that would be better, too. What do you think, David? I agree with pretty much all of that. Um, let me just push a little bit more on on the cost. So you said it's sixteen to seventeen million a year. It was sixteen million for twenty sixteen seventeen. I didn't have the cost for all the years of the each each of the study years. Okay, and uh, maybe I just missed it. I mean, do we have a sense of how many kids schools have? You know, I don't know, random adults who are being paid ten dollars standing outside them, right? I mean. Yeah, I mean, it was it was eighty three. You're at I mean eighty three, eighty four treatment schools that we're asking. Yeah, that's that's what the eight the sixteen million is being spread across. Uh, well, that's yeah, interesting. In the study. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's how they're budgeting or not, but I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable assumption. 
Yeah. I know. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, right? Because it's certainly, certainly something that's worth trying. I have no alternative hypothesis for like why why attendance would improve if you, you know, unless the kids are scared to come to school, basically, which is pretty sobering. Um, I'm just curious to know, you know, basically how much this costs. Is it something we can scale? And, you know, should we be doing it, basically, right? Is this money is sort of the, the next question, right? I mean, maybe we should be doing it in all big cities. Yeah. Uh, maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it makes me think of the current situation we're in where almost every big city in the country, well, I guess right now, every big city is still doing remote learning. And, you know, there's been this, this really interesting disparity by race and socioeconomics in terms of parent preferences with most parents of color and poor parents being more likely to want remote learning. Now, part we've discussed, that's partly because their communities have been hit harder by the pandemic. It may be that they trust their schools less to keep their kids safe. But look, it's also just that, you know, they may live in more dangerous neighborhoods where I, I imagine, imagine if remote learning became more normalized, even after the crisis, there may be a lot of families in, in dangerous neighborhoods that would prefer their kids to learn from home so they don't have to be out there in dangerous neighborhoods, right? I mean, that's, you know, we didn't see that so much before with, you know, it wasn't like there was a ton of online learning or people choosing uh, virtual charter schools from these neighborhoods, some, but not a lot. But you know, look, if it maybe becomes more normal and people say, well, this this isn't such a crazy idea. I mean, I could say personally in the charter school that I was affiliated with in, in Ward 8 and, and Anacostia in DC, parents love the program. They mm -hmm. wanted to make sure those safe passage monitors yeah. were, out, were out there when their kids were coming in and out. The principal made sure those monitors were where they were, you know, stationed when they were supposed to be stationed. Uh, it was announced on the intercom, you know, can't leave yet. All our safe passage folks aren't in place. I mean, it was it was well communicated and well understood about the program, and um, and and families families really appreciated it. And and how many how many adults are there for this for a school? I mean, how many? Yeah, I mean, in this yeah in this study, I think they said there was one adult for every what was it three blocks something like. That. I can't exactly remember how many there were in the vicinity of the school. Yeah. Now, of course, let's also acknowledge that last week we talked, or I mean, earlier uh, we talked yeah, this Brandon. week. Not this <laughs> week, right. Sorry. Earlier we talked with Brandon about, you know, stretching the school dollar, including spending less money on non instructional staff. Right. Uh, right. And here we are coming up with a new way to spend money on people who are not actually in the classroom. I, look, consistency, foolish consistency is a goblet of little minds, but it is, I mean, that's kind of where my question is coming from, right? It's like, I like this, right? I like a lot of things that cost money. Yeah. <laughs> that's what makes yeah. us love you, David. Yeah, right. Well, uh, you know, look, I mean, I do. And, and um, but yeah, I mean, if, if it's, how many teachers is it? How many, you know, how many, how many tax dollars is it? Right. Um, right. What are the trade-offs? Yeah. All right, gang. Hey. That is all the time we've got, but super interesting, Amber, and I agree, really relevant to, to the, what's going on uh, in the real world, or at least what was going on in the real world before, back when kids went to school uh, right. from urban neighborhoods, and uh, we'll get back to that world someday, we hope. Yeah. But until next week, I'm David Griffith, and I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.